You might think NASDAQ is that little ticker that scrolls stock prices across your screen or around Times Square. Turns out they do a whole lot more. Today, we'll hear how they use human-centered design and rapid prototyping to make business apps that keep stock markets moving. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. We are excited to have Aaron Irizarry on the show today. He is the Director of User Experience at NASDAQ. Yes, that NASDAQ you've probably all heard of. He's also co-author of Discussing Design, a book about improving communication and collaboration through critique. Great book available on O'Reilly. You can go get that now. And he is a frequent speaker on the conference circuit and master of barbecue. Aaron, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm psyched to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, you know, we've talked off and on throughout the years about uh, a lot of this stuff, so I'm excited to actually um, sit down and have a, a, an actual formal conversation, so to speak, and uh, and and record it so everybody else can hear what's going on. <laughs> Noted that this is being recorded. Gotcha. I'll make sure to be on my best behavior. Um, yeah, it's great, man. I'm 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 excited to talk about some of this stuff. I, I hope. Uh, Whatever conversations, whether it be about barbecue or anything else, prove to be uh, helpful to listeners. Yeah. So um, why don't we start by uh, give people an idea of what you're doing at NASDAQ. I mean, people think of it as an exchange, but there's a lot more to it. And it pro- might be surprising that there's someone in your role, like actually controlling the experience design. What, what are you doing day to day? Yeah, you know, that's funny. That's one of the most common questions I get when I'm, whether I'm at an event or a meetup or just chatting with people saying, you know, what do you do for a living? That kind of a thing. And I told them, you know, I design at, at NASDAQ. And they're like, like, do you design that little ticker that runs across the bottom of the screen? Yeah, right. I'm like, no, no, man. I like, that probably wouldn't have been a very long career because that thing's not very complex. Um, <laughs> so uh, NASDAQ, you know, is known probably traditionally as more of like a technology exchange, right? And so over time, they realized that they had the opportunity to uh, generate additional revenue by providing certain services um, to companies who list on the exchange. And so they have a business unit within NASDAQ, which is primarily the main business unit our design team works uh, works in called Corporate Solutions. And this is a collection of software as a service, uh, like a suite of products that's offered to these companies who list on the exchange. And it allows them to kind of better monitor and facilitate a lot of the things they have to do now as a public company. Um, and so you would get things like, you know, press release distribution and reporting, earnings reporting, webcasting for your earnings calls, like software that that allows you to facilitate, monitor, promote these types of things, as well as the big, the big meaty piece of software that we work on is an investor relations uh, application, and this allows the, the IRO or the CFO or the some of those teams within companies to be able to manage the ownership in their company and who's investing in them, and set up roadshows to go meet with them to, to continue to build that relationship and. And so it also, you know, keeps them informed of what's happening in the market and their peers and their sector and these types of things. And this is like really helpful software for these folks who, you know, financial services has kind of got, in my opinion, the short end of the stick when it comes to like design, right? We want to go yeah. design the next 
um, car service that's going to piss somebody off or the next cute thing over here or this Internet of Things thing in my home to where my refrigerator tweets to me to get eggs to bring home, like all these things that we deem as like sexy design projects. But yet financial services is like incredibly antiquated. It's so old. The, the software project we redesigned this last couple, you know, that launched in 2016, people have been using for over 10 years. So think about software you used 10 years ago. Yeah, it was horrible. It's, it was horrible. Even the, the cutting edge software to by today's standards would be horrible, right? Yeah. And so we have these immense challenges. And I think it's really cool to see that, you know, starting with uh, my manager, Chris Avore, who, who some listeners may be familiar with. I know you know him. When he came in as a consultant and then they asked him to stay on and build our team, uh, you know, he came in 2011, I think. I joined the team in 2013. Uh, we're at like 20 folks now. We've been as high as about 30. You know, we, you know we've, we've really grown into this role within the company of trying to uh, facilitate product design and working alongside product managers and developers and, and contributing to strategy and, and really striving to understand the business goals of, of corporate solutions within NASDAQ and how we can use design to facilitate and meet those goals. And so it's been a really unique challenge. Nothing I never, uh, nothing I could have imagined coming in to working at NASDAQ um, at all. Yeah, like I honestly took the role and was like, I have no idea what I'm actually going to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it's a lot more complicated than than most people realize. I mean, there's uh, obviously very high value stakeholders, people who have yep. a lot to um, a lot to lose if things go south. So yeah. you know, you've got to be really on top of making sure that the stuff you're designing not just works well from um, from a usability perspective and, and from an aesthetic perspective, but functionally um, on the back end that everything actually works. Yeah. Oh, there's there's multiple levels to this. And one of the things that's been a really great lesson for us is um, good design is not always what's best. And I think people would balk at that and be like, you know, you have <laughs> whoever's on your show is smoking something. Right. But like <laughs> in, in reality, you know, we found that, like I said, you know, some of the software people are using is over, you know, they're used to they're used to using something for the last 10 years. So whether it was designed well or not, they've become really efficient at using poorly designed software. Right. And you when you're going to redesign a platform, that's a part of the workflow that someone uses for their job every single day. Or that the other end of that, someone, you know, logs into once a quarter um, and they're so used to it being a certain way, you really have to think through things like, you know, for us, data density is huge tables, you know, it's financial service, there's tons of tabular data that we have to constantly right. surface. And what you end up doing, you know, as a national designer, you, you got nice spacing in there, it just lends to readability, there's a nice aesthetic to it. And you'll just hear from the customer like, this looks beautiful, but it's useless to me. Yeah. Because yeah. when I'm in a rush trying to put together earnings, I need to see 40 and 50 results at a time. You know, and I'm thinking there is, you know, the the designer in me is thinking, no, but the, the, your mind can't process all that stuff. And they're like, well, my 10 years of experience doing it says otherwise. Right. right. And yeah. you realize that you're like, OK, where do I find the happy middle here? Like of of trying to improve design, but you know, am I really improving the design if I'm completely disrupting their workflow and making their lives harder? Because I think that takes that that reverses the intent of what design should be. And so we've had to really challenge ourselves and find these happy mediums and um, and balance these needs with with business goals. Right. Like there's there's a, a tendency to fall into idealism when it comes to the work we do. And I think that, you know, working at NASDAQ and seeing the business goals and seeing the different customers and the variety of customers. I mean, we constantly get feedback from customers wanting something different in the system. 
But for every one that wants it one way, you've got 10 that wanted a different. So do, who do you cater to? Who do you design for? And so it's kind of hard to find that happy middle sometimes. And I think that's a great challenge for designers yeah, is to, and, to and, find that place, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think you spoke to something that um, is a common fallacy is that design is about the aesthetics and about the way it looks. And it's really not. It's much more about the way that it works and, and what it enables you to accomplish, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure, you know, I could probably start like six or seven Twitter arguments right now. But, you know, in my mind, when I look at these things, it's like when I'm making something for someone else, why am I doing it the way I want? Right. I mean, right. this is just common sense. I don't know. This is this is probably my lack of like it's technical the whole design education speaking. Thing. Well, yeah. And it's just like I don't you know, we can we can go back to all of our human computer interaction. We can go back to all the stuff we've read. But when it comes down to it, like. If you're designing basically on what you want to do, in my mind, you're really just doing art, right? Because art is for me. I can paint something that's absolutely horrid, which, you know, could be some splatters on a canvas with like a picture of a stop sign. And it was a fun project of expression and and enjoyment for me. And I really think it looks cool. Someone will look at that and be like, wow, that was a waste of a couple hours, right? Now. It doesn't matter. It was still useful because it's for me. So in my mind, when I design for myself, if I'm only designing things that I think are of value or that I think are going to work and I'm not listening to others, I'm not designing for others, and I'm not balancing what I think should be done with what their needs actually are, then I'm leaning to the art side of design, not so yep. much the the functional, not so much the – or I would even say like the productized or the service side of design, right? Yeah, exactly. So can you talk a little bit about – um, how you decide what you're going to uh, put into a particular round of work? Like what? How do you decide which problems you're going to solve and how do you go about figuring out the right solution? Yeah, so I think fortunately as, as an in-house team, right, we, we ha- usually have a starting point as the business has a set of goals, right? And we now are in a, a pretty awesome position that we uh, are hearing from business units or we're hearing from our own, you know, corporate solutions that we work within a NASDAQ and have some level of, of influence. So we can kind of be involved in some of those early stages about what we would want to do or what the needs are. And we can kind of show how we work as a team and then work alongside them. You know, that's what we really strive for anyways. And so we, you know, we do a ton of research. We have uh, just tons. I think, I think when we were looking at like our year in review this year, I think last year we did like 187 sessions combined. Right. And yeah, wow. that's, and that's with a director of research, one dedicated researcher, and then those two leading, encouraging, mentoring, and facilitating the leads on our design team to do, to lead and participate in the research practice. Cause for two people to do that much and do summaries is, is, overwhelming, if not impossible. Right. So we have to involve the whole team in there, which is great. I think that's a great idea to get everyone involved. Um, so we use a lot of research. We, we are driven by it. We do a lot of discovery. We do any way, any form of research we can, you know, whether it's like a survey, you know, and when we get into the process and start prototyping, we do usability testing and we really try to find ways to, you know, use that information to inform what we do. Fortunately, because of the type of software we, we design, NASDAQ has what our customer would be. So NASDAQ, if we're designing an investor relations software, NASDAQ has an IRO, right? So right. we can go to them maybe ahead of time and and pick their brain a little bit, put some screens in front of them. And uh, Chris actually has been really great in 
in kind of paving those ways and, and doing that relationship management and building relationships with uh, individuals in the organization that have given us kind of that 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 audience with them, right? And that's really helped uh, our design. And then, you know, it really is. We just try to use what we're learning to to inform the work we do to get it back in front of uh, customers and get their feedback, as well as, you know, fortunately for us, it's we have an interesting dynamic with our product teams, and that some of them are definitely product ba- product background. They, they've built something before and they know the space. Other times, a lot of our product managers have come up through the ranks of the company and just been put into a product role. So while they're not maybe as used to the product design process, they have just uh, enormous amounts of domain knowledge that can be incredibly helpful, right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of that thing, and it's really partnering with these folks um, to to set goals and shared understanding of what we want to accomplish and try to move it forward, you know, as a team. And that's really like the driving factor in a lot of what we do when we make decisions, you know, early in the process, we'll do a collaborative exercise like design studio. Um, I think that's usually the best place for that earlier in the process to get that uh, idea generation going. And then we try to have a lot of sessions with, you know, critiquing, bouncing ideas off each other, talking through things, putting them back in front of folks. Um, you know, I just, keeping constant dialogue about what we're trying to do that's rooted in the goals we're trying to accomplish, I think is, is kind of what really helps us in our decision-making process and, and where we take things. Yeah. It sounds like it's a a lot of, um, collaboration and iteration and really getting the stakeholders, like the end user or somebody who's representative of that end user involved in the process of, of making things and making sure that, um, that you stay really tight to what their expectations are and, and making sure that you're going to meet their goals and, and not really caring about your personal or the, the internal goals or, or around aesthetics or anything else. Yeah. And, you know, and it doesn't always work. I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, I definitely will say that, like, I say we like to do all these things and this is our approach and this is how I view it and we want to do it. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. you Sometimes you you do like I mean we there's been instances where we did tons of research got the product in front of folks and we still missed the mark on certain things right it just happens that's the nature of design but that's that's what is kind of cool about building a team and trying to facilitate a team a team's efforts and work to be like resilient is that we can like okay cool we found out it didn't work let's put that effort now into finding out what does and we we work from there um, and it is like you know aesthetics are super cool like I, I dig it I love seeing great design I love seeing creative ideas and concepts and I love all that stuff and that's and that's great and there's a place for all of that you know and, mm-hmm. and there is within financial services even though financial services sounds like wicked boring but there is there and I, what I what I think is like how do we apply some of those things so like maybe I don't do some cool like animations and slide out and interface, but maybe I apply a level of problem solving and creative thinking to the solution, you know, and maybe the design surfaces itself as a graph for some numbers or a table. But if I was creative in my thinking of how to solve a problem, I think I'm still being creative. I think I'm still providing the right aesthetic for the right time. And, and, and because I think things can look really good. I don't think that function and form have to be like polar opposites, right? I think they can be intertwined. And, and I think that that's important to, to remember that I can still make this look good and have it meet someone's needs, right? Like that's, that's not that far-fetched of an idea in my mind. Yeah, of course. And, and the trick is to getting to that spot. Yeah. Is finding yeah. a way that you know, you're solving the user needs first and then you can um, use the creativity and aesthetics and in visuals to um, make it look nice at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the form follows function rule, but 
but I, I'm not yeah. sure if that applies specifically anymore. I, you know, I'm not sure any of this applies anymore. You know, <laughs> I, I just think and the more, the more I do this and the more I listen to the community and the more I see things, it's like, I think there's a lot of great things being said. There's a lot of cool things being done, but to me, it always comes back to the context of, of where you are, what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and of course, if you want to use lean, use lean. If you want to try to say you're agile and, you know, or you're waterfall, what is working do that. If it's not working, do something else and figure out what that thing is. Try these different ideas. Listen to different perspectives from people within the community and the things we're reading in books. But more, more importantly, be driven by the need of who you're designing for and allow that to determine the process that you think will facilitate that best, right? So I think, yeah, I, I think there is going to be times where we thought, you're right, you know, form follows function or, or even throw it on its head and, and, you know, function follows form. Who knows? I think the, the scenario and where we are can determine those things for us. Um, and if we just look at the valuable resources of what's being said and taught and, and published around us and say, okay, how does that fit into the situation that I am in? If it right. does, cool. If it doesn't, cool. But maybe this one little part does, so I'll borrow that. Like, awesome. That's, that's kind of the beauty of the work we do is that um, as much as we like to be pragmatic and argue about Twitter on Twitter about this or that, I think that we could, we're probably okay if we use a little of this, a little of that, and maybe not even anything – over there or what we've learned before, we do it completely new, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's like we say internally at, at our shop, you know, there's one answer to every problem. And yeah, that yeah. answer is it depends. Yep. There's, there's so many different <laughs> variables, right? And a lot Absolutely. of it can come down to subjectivity. You know, earlier you said something about um, design is not always, or, or the best design is not always what's best. And, and it's because best is so subjective, yeah. Best for who? Best for what situation? Best, you know, what are you actually trying to accomplish here? So, yeah, that, I think that's a good point. So can you talk a little bit about um, the the processes that you're using to go through some of those exercises? Like what type of research tools or how are you capturing information? Um, yeah. Just talk a little uh, bit about that. So what's kind of cool is, you know, like with our, our director of research, Megan, she, Megan Grocky, she kind of like sets the tone for like, you know, here's the type of scripts we're going to use for usability testing. Here's the type of, um, you know, here's the, the process we'd like to do. Here's how to facilitate an interview. And she's always uh, willing to work with like team members, maybe who aren't, you know, their primary role is not research to like give them advice, give them feedback, help them, you know, kind of refine that skill set. And so when we, you know, we'll often... When we can go on site, we do. We try to record as many conversations as we can, obviously with whoever we're working with permission. And then, you know, we use, I know we've talked to you about this before, we have our tool Mosaic, which is basically a, a tool that allows us to aggregate all of our, our research findings and information in a way that's useful and tied to campaigns and products that we're working on. And so, you know, we definitely will try to run, we're, we do a couple types of campaigns because, you know, Getting participants sometimes can be a little, you know, recruiting can be a little tough depending on people's schedules who some people will say they're interested, you never hear from them again, or the schedules just don't line up. So yep. sometimes we do very short bursts, like one week, like almost like mini campaigns where we just talk to whoever we can and then share the summary and say, was there enough to make uh, an iterative decision from this? When there so by is, campaign, are you defining a campaign as a like a, a research initiative? Yeah. Yeah. I should. Yeah. Sorry about that. So like a campaign, maybe we're going to test out like, uh, an option for a new navigation, uh, structure, you know, sure. we'll say, okay, we have some ideas. Maybe let's try some different language on the nav, maybe different groupings of sub nav items. Let's, uh, let's sort together a little campaign for that. Try to talk to maybe four or five folks, you know, or get four or five sessions booked and see what we learn from it. 
and then do right. that. And then, uh, you know, depending on how that goes, we'll we'll get some information. There are sometimes things surface that are very definitive and we know to act on. Sometimes they don't. So maybe we have to run another one and say, okay, we didn't get quite the information we wanted from that. Let's try this. Or people didn't respond to the name of this navigation item. Let's try a different name and run it again. Right. It allows right. us to try to work, you know, as quickly as we can on a large software project within a large company, right? Because that's always sometimes by the nature of the work we do at a large company, um, you don't get to move as quickly as you like. And so we we try to do that as best we can. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so how many people are, are are you testing with? Well, when you make a change and send that out, how many people see it or how how much data do you feel is enough data to make a, a good yeah. decision? You know, that's a, um, I think Megan says, and if, and if I'm wrong, she'll maybe she'll hear this and correct me, or I'll ask her again and then send you the info. But I think we try to do like if you hear the same thing or something very similar on like your fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth interview, you're probably solid, right? right. Like you've you've heard that consistent thing, you know, a handful of times, then you're probably good there. If you're hearing varying things every single time. It's maybe time to change up the process or to, to, to continue on and grab some new participants until something sticks, right? Um, or maybe try a different method. Like if, if you're not getting that response, then maybe you don't do, um, you know, usability sessions or discovery sessions. Maybe you try something like card sorting or you tried something else, a different uh, tool to facilitate finding whatever common theme you're trying to identify or the response you're, you know, the, the assumption you're trying to validate with, with your customers. Yeah, so that's interesting. If you're not identifying a thread within maybe five to ten people, you try to a different tool to try to identify that thread. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say like because I mean, in the same sense that we're like, if something is working five times in a row and you're hearing the same thing, you're probably onto something, right? Um, I would say the opposite could very well be true. Um, that if you're trying something and you're in your fifth, sixth, seventh session, and there's nothing common, which I don't know how often that really happens, but there's a, you know, there's nothing sticking and like every person's saying something different. Maybe it's time to reevaluate and see if there's a different way to facilitate that conversation. Because what I would wonder then is if what you're asking for feedback on or what you're putting in front of them or the questions you're asking maybe aren't resonating, right? Because mm-hmm. I would like, in our work, and I think of this in the context of our work, right? We're designing for usually a specific group of people. So if we're designing, you know, uh, investor relations software, we're talking to people who work in that industry. So it's possibly a little bit easier for us to have certain themes resonate because there's an industry there, right? And so well, they it may sounds use like, like your audience terms. is just right. Yeah, it sounds like your audience is just really well defined, right? So if you're talking yeah. to IROs within companies of a certain size, there's only so many of those people, and you already know how to contact them. So yeah, getting that feedback should be relatively straightforward, right? Now on the other end, I, and I don't know how Google does this, but if I was doing a campaign about how to improve search, good lord, like you know what I mean? Like yeah, exactly. there's a there's a million yeah. you know a sub bajillion users for search, and you can be searching for local businesses, you can be searching for something funny on the internet, you can be searching for music. Like you obviously have to yeah. drill in deeper to find that, but um, really it's just keep trying to find ways to have conversations. And yeah, I think and if, if you do that, you'll facilitate, you'll get answers. Yeah, that's where the it depends comes back, right? It depends mm-hmm. on the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. So sure. do you do you think on the research side, do you think it might also be true that if you're using a certain tool and you're getting very consistent answers from everybody that the tool might actually be creating a bias and you should try a different tool to confirm? 
Yeah, I mean that's where things were having you know variants in your whether it's in your testing or in your what you're putting in front of people as well, right? So sometimes um, the way the artifact that you're putting in front of someone is set up. So say you're reviewing a screen and you're looking at the priority of of items on that screen, right? You know the different modules on a page, and you're talking to folks. Sometimes how things are worded or the data you put in there or that type of information can be you know. Uh, biasing itself. We've learned that um, as well. That sometimes, you know, sometimes you put fake data in, right? So you're like, you know, you maybe put someone, you're looking at a screen and there's a profile of someone or some type of metric. And if you're not clear in, in what that is, because you've just kind of thrown in like, oh, this is placeholder text. You, the person responding to that doesn't know the context behind that. They're only yep. going to respond to what they see. And so you could be setting them up to give you information that's not as helpful, right? right. And so it's really important to think through that. Um, and how you're presenting to them, like how real can we make this, um, to what they're doing? Like, let's not use fake stuff. Well, you know, are there just looking through, like reviewing your screens for you get them in front of people to understand, like, are there things on here that are going to confuse people as far as what they mean, which is okay if they do, because there could, you could learn something there where something needs to be clarified or better communicated at the same time. You, they need to at least know what's going on, right? Like, yeah, you know, exactly. You, you don't go and do anything with like lorem ipsum on the screen, you know, or or just something that's not relevant there. Like, try to make it as real for them as possible, so that they can respond and say, "Oh, I understand what you're trying to do here, but that's not useful to me." Or right, or, you know, that kind of a scenario. Yeah, we've seen that too, where you put. Uh, placeholder content in something and people just don't take it seriously because they know that it's placeholder content. And so they're, they're too focused on trying to imagine things and rather actually think about what they would, how they would actually use it. Yeah. And that's, and that's sometimes you don't have the content, right? Like that. And I'm sure folks will come across that where they're designing for someone and they honestly don't know what goes there. So maybe that's a position where you are thinking about, you know, maybe having something a little less defined there um, and saying like, hey, if you had these five sections on a screen, as far as the priority goes, section one, two, three, four, five, based on what this application would do for you, what would be the type of content you would be, you know, you would value on this page and in what priority, right? Yeah, well, I but think he, that's where you drop to a lower fidelity prototype, exactly, right? Where you just say, put yeah. a, a you know a gray line in place of where the text would go, so yep. they can see that text would go there, but they're not distracted by it being words they don't understand. Exactly. Yeah. It, speaking of prototypes, how are you using prototyping? Well, so we we've def, we've as a team, at least since I've been on, have have constantly prototyped uh, in the browser, right? So, prototype our designs. I think. You know, one that just when there's functionality there, it's so much easier to explain. It reduces the need for, you know, extra documentation. I still think that it's important to provide documentation alongside of, of prototypes, but you just don't have to do as much now. <laughs> I know I know a lot of people say that, you know, the, the prototype is the documentation. Um, I don't I that to me, it's kind of like a yes and or a yes, but there, because I feel like if you're handing your prototype to someone to build out like a developer, um, they still need to know, right? Like, okay, what's going on here? Like, okay, in this prototype, especially if you're working on something over a number of sprints for an upcoming release and you give them the same prototype every couple of weeks, they're going to need to know what's changed and yep. what features are where or what things are still work in progress and they don't have to worry about yet. So I think some level of documentation and context is always helpful. And, you know, it just means less assumptions from the other side, which possibly means 
less things aren't what they're supposed you know less things aren't what they're supposed to be less conversations to clarify things the more you can do to clarify things it's always the you know better within reason um, another thing we found extremely valuable outside of just handing prototypes over to developers or for usability testing is that our business owners really like them right the, the stakeholders the business side of the house that we work with can use them for demos and they can show them to customers or they can show them to other um, senior management or executives and they see something functional and it's easier for them to convey the idea. As a designer, mm -hmm. it's often pretty easy for me to look at a static screen and say, yeah, I know it's going to do this and it's going to do that because I kind of have a vision there, right? But if I hand that screen over to someone else and then they go to talk to someone else, communication gets broken down there. Then I'm expecting that person to explain this vision for this, you know, even if they know it really well and we've talked about it a million times, it's just so much easier for them to see it working, right? It just yeah, exactly. it shows that we can make it and we can and we can get it there. And so that's been really good for us. But there's other times too where we deliver screens or we've used Envision to crank out some prototypes. And I love the 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 pairing of Envision and Sketch together. That works really well. And that's been been helpful at time. And that allows, you know, depending on our team who has a lot kind of has a lot of generalists, if some of the folks on our team are just they can prototype things out in code, but it takes them a lot longer than others, right? Because the, maybe that's not their primary skill set. Something like Envision helps them crank out and simulate interactions quicker and more efficiently. And then, we, you know, it's like, why force a skill set if it's going to be more frustrating to accomplish something or, or reduce efficiency? So we, allow, you know, use the tool that works is kind of what we try to do. But we do, in the end, try to get most everything back into a prototype, right? It allows us to compare. It allows us to demonstrate. When we get things back from development, we can look at the prototype side by side with it and say, when we click on the prototype, it does this. When we click in the production or the, the testing environment, it kind of does that. Maybe it needs to be working or actually cool, it does work. So I think prototyping is really uh, incredibly helpful for us in that sense. Yeah, exactly. So when you say prototype, you're talking about something that's actually in application code that could run on a website or yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's all yeah, cool. It's and it's all front end stuff like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, right? Like right. we're not doing any crazy back end stuff. Yeah, cool. So could you talk a little bit about um, as the team has been built out and as you've introduced some of these uh, research tactics and um, some of these processes around prototyping and, and getting things in front of people and testing and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about how that's changed the way NASDAQ has approached what they've done as a business and maybe some of the business impact of, of, um, of, of those processes? Yes. Um, now, I, I will put an asterisk before this and say Chris can definitely uh, speak to some of this a little better than I can because he's a lot closer to the business. But I will say this. Um, We've been working towards building products that customers like get value from, right? And so the business at you know will definitely better understand design, understands what we do. Now, not all of the business does. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's turnover, new people come in, we have to re-educate or show what we do. So it's a constant process. It's it's I don't think that at any point in time, like sharing how we approach our research, turning designs around has instantly given us a certain spot. It has given us a lot of, of, of recognition and support and advocacy within the company. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that. I think one of the easiest ways to see that value is uh, they don't, I think the individual may not be on, it's not on our team anymore, so they don't get set out. But they send out like a deal of the day where someone selling the software as a service that we design, you know, gets gets the deal. So they send it around, but hey, it's the deal of the day. This person landed this killer deal. And what we would see, interestingly enough, was they'd be like, oh yeah, the com they like this better than competitor. And we would they would note, 
the design was was much better than the competitors or this approach was much better than the competitors and it was things that our team had direct influence on and so i think in a large company that's kind of a cool way internally to see that your that your process how you're approaching your work is having an impact um Sometimes it's also really hard to see too. Sometimes uh, with a an organization that can tend to be slow moving, you may not see things for a long time, right? And right. when you, when you're very one of the things I think is really hard when you're trying to measure business impact and design, a lot of times when you're really close to the work and you're really close to the business, you only see the issues. And so it's there can be a tendency to look at things and see like oh man this customer complained about this or about that okay let's go talk to them see what we can do and that's one of the areas i think um we have tried to to help is when a customer complained maybe about being migrated to the new design or they're having some issue with it our design team is willing to hop on the phone with them and listen and i think mm -hmm. that has helped folks have been saved right they've been like we were going to cancel now we're not so i think those are things that are um one, like customer retention is impacted. I think new sales are, are impacted when we take someone and they've switched from a competitor to us and there's revenue tied to them and they have different contracts and different value. So sometimes, the, you know, it's a deal that's thousands and thousands of thousands of dollars, you know, it could be in the twenty to $30,000 deal. Other times it's like a, you know, 1200 service to dollar service upgrade or something. So it's not always this huge, massive impact. But what I love is that people can see that, the efforts of the design team impacted a decision of the customer to do something positive with the company. And right. I think that's, that's, and obviously money is always in, in the, in the business's mind is one of the more important things, but keeping customers on pulling customers from competition because we offer a new feature or something's more intuitive or easier for them than it was in the customer's applicant in their, in their competitor's application. I mean, those, those are, those are the things that we've seen. Um, and we've seen the opposite too. We've seen people frustrated with the work and we just listen we, we we jot it down, we try to work on it and try to improve it, and we go back to them. And we try to show it to them again and say, hey, look, we're listening to you. And I think right. that, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes there's a short game and you see like an instant like, yeah, cool, that customer switched to us. That's awesome. Because we use this design process and facilitated and executed on that design idea, it had awesome business impact. Sometimes you don't see that though for six or seven months either. So there's a long game as well. <laughs> it's yeah. just about it's about being patient and and knowing and trusting the process and believing in what you're doing. You know. Yeah, I would think especially in financial services where there's you know there could be significant risk in switching platforms, right? So uh, absolutely. Yeah. When you get a customer to move from a competitor's platform because they've experienced the results of of your human centered design processes. Yeah. Um, you know, that's really powerful. And, you know, even if it is 1200 bucks, you know, that stuff adds up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as we're wrapping up here, Aaron, um, any final thoughts? No, I think I, I definitely appreciate you giving me the opportunity to kind of ramble and, and just kind of speak off the top of my head about just my, my initial thoughts on some of this stuff. You know, it's been cool. I, you know, I, I would just say, you know, the thing that's helped me have whatever level of uh, longevity or persistence or success is trying to remain open and trying to not be so set in, in my way of thinking or approaching something that I allow it to limit, you know? And yeah. so I, I would just encourage listeners in that, like look for new ways, try something different, but also then on the other end of that, don't be afraid if something's working and you don't, and you're, and it's going well, but you're not using the coolest, newest thing. 
that's also totally 100% fine. Really right. just look at what you're working on in the moment and try to figure out what's best, whether it's something old, something new, or a combination of various things, right? You know, just just figure it out. And I think the more you listen, the more you take notes, and the more you are, are willing to learn and, and from those experiences, like be teachable, I think that you're going to see progress uh, over time that's really valuable. Yeah, so just listen to people, keep an open mind, and yeah. use the tools that are and processes that are right for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Um, so if somebody wants to get in touch with you, um, chat about things, learn more about what you're doing at NASDAQ, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, probably Twitter. Um, I would just say, you know, it's just, it's easy to just say like, Hey, at Aaron, I, right. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. like, that's like the easiest way. I think, uh, shoot me something on Twitter. We can, uh, we can set up, you know, I can, we can exchange information that way or, or meet up for coffee or, or food or drink or something and, and chat. I'm always up for stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's the best way. All right. Sounds good. Um, I'd like to get you back on the show at some point, um, hear a little bit more about what's going on, maybe get you and Chris on at the same time. I think that'd be a lot of fun. And, oh, yeah, and, uh, and maybe <laughs> next time we can chat a little bit more about brisket and barbecue. I like all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for being on the show, Aaron. It was really valuable. Um, and we'll chat again soon. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Design Driven. We're glad you enjoy the show. Have comments, questions, or an idea that you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us on the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email. And tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcast. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business. <laughs>